Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. I have some great news to share with you. I teased it last week, told you I was going to Minneapolis to Acme Comedy Club, one of my favorite clubs in the country, to record some stand-up stuff for TV. And at the time, this is a lot of times when I tell you I have some kind of exciting stuff coming up that I can't give you all the details on. It's because they're finalizing a title of something or a deal or don't have the um, the press release together and approved or whatever it might be. But now I can share with you those details. On October 5th, a new series comes out on Epics, which I will have an episode on. It is a all-new original docu-series called Unprotected Sets. And the idea is it's a little look into the life of a stand-up comic and a, a little bit of a look into what an actual... It's like a night out at a comedy club, what that looks like, but also kind of what it looks like through my eyes. And so they recorded a set with me, which you'll see, of course, but you'll also see uh, a bit from the host that night, the feature act. They shot some interview stuff, so people will get a little bit more of a background on me. They shot some kind of backstage stuff, hanging out in the green room before and after the show. And, And it's kind of all meant to be... Um, you know, they shot it in Minneapolis because it's sort of like a home club to me. I, I'm from two and a half hours from there in the cross, Wisconsin. And so it's got a little bit of a home club kind of feel to it as it, as it's exploring these comics lives. And so I'm just really excited to be a part of it. And Epics is, uh, if you don't know about or have the premium television network Epics, uh, don't worry about it. They are blowing up. They are now owned by MGM, and there's been a lot more resources put into it and a bunch more new series coming out on it. And for the purposes of your viewing pleasure, uh, the the great news is it's going to be on a variety of uh, different platforms, including Amazon Prime. So if you have an Amazon Prime uh, subscription, which... Uh, if you haven't been taking advantage of watching the Amazon Instant TV with your Amazon Prime subscription, I highly recommend it. I have it. Watch it quite a bit. I was watching a show, Electric Dreams. It's like their version of Black Mirror. Fantastic. Recently, it's an aside. They're not paying me to say that. I'm just saying it's it's uh, take advantage of it. If you have the, the Amazon Prime Fantastic content on there, and I'm going to be on there very soon. Starting October 5th is when the series premieres. I'm not sure what week my episode is going to release. I'll obviously keep you guys posted with that, but I wanted to share the good news as it came in. It was just a fun set, some really, really great, uh, meaningful material from me. I really got to... Uh, I. It's kind of a darker set that I wrote when I was going through a bit of a funk um, recently. And it was cool that they shot some behind-the-scenes stuff. I'm not sure what the final version will look like. But I got to, in the interviews, kind of give some of that context, which I think will uh, only help the make the jokes funnier, more relatable, and more interesting. And so I'm just really excited to be a part of this. Also, if you're looking to see me live, I have some dates in Florida coming out if you're if you're the type of person that uh, as soon as here we are comes out you download it you listen to it right away you might be able to catch me in Sarasota Florida this week and then I'm in next week Gainesville 
uh, Coral uh, Gables outside of Miami. I'm in Key West. Go to ShaneMoss.com for more. And thank you all that can get out and support my stand-up in any way that you can and spreading the word and all of that. Uh, and uh, once again, I'm really excited about the material that I've been doing lately. Very meaningful to me, and, and the audience reaction has been uh, really fantastic and interesting, kind of more um, more challenging content and ultimately re- more rewarding as well. So I hope you get a chance to see me sometime live soon. I'm going to be in Michigan in October and Chicago and more dates being added very soon. That's another thing with this, this uh, uh, new uh, TV series that I'm going to be on. It's something that I can you know, send out to all the, the clubs and tell them I have kind of this, this cool new show, um, an episode coming out soon. And that usually helps get some more dates locked in and in the books. So make sure and keep an eye on Shane Moss, M-A-U-S-S dot com for more and enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm back in one of my favorite cities, Minneapolis, and uh, I, I was just back last weekend in Onalaska, Wisconsin. Actually, La Crosse, Wisconsin is where we had my 20-year high school reunion, and I just happened to have an extra day pop up where I wasn't spending time with family and reached out to some past podcast guests and was very lucky, very fortunate to be introduced to today's guest who is assistant professor at the Carlson School of Management. Alan Benson joins me. Alan, thank you for joining me today. The pleasure's all mine. So you study the economics of uh, human resources. That's right. This is a lot of many of my guests do is is kind of take some of the the assumptions that we have about whatever aspect of life and test them and see if those assumptions are are accurate. And I'm excited to be here today because often until recently we've done a couple episodes now here at uh, at Carlson, but until recently we never really have gotten too much into business and organizational management and psychology and, and uh, that sort of thing. So so the field is kind of wide open for you uh, right now. And so we all have, not not we, because I don't have a real job, but most people that have a real job work within their organization. They have coworkers, they have these hierarchies, they're trying to get promotions, they have the varying responsibilities, and they have all of these assumptions about the best way to run a business and you get in there and look at the data and test those assumptions. Is that, uh, am I, how, how badly am I butchering what you do for a living? <laughs> That's pretty good. It's like okay. you, like you have a real job. You've been there, done that. No, I have about. had a That's real good. job. Okay. Before. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit about, um, about your work? Like what are you studying at the moment? How did you get into this and what are you studying at the moment? Sure. Uh, I think the way that I got into this is I think, uh, like so many other social scientists, we go off and we're living our lives and we maybe have some questions like uh, everyone has questions. I think one of the things that I think, you know, makes uh, 
social scientists become a social scientist is they want to go off and dig data and produce theories that try to explain so much of what they see. Um, and that's really fundamentally at the root of how I became interested in this. And in, in particular, uh, when I was in, uh, in graduate school, the ability to, at that time, uh, companies were collecting a lot of information about their people. And there was uh, new data on, for example, who companies were hiring. They were companies were machine reading uh, CVs and resumes and trying to learn who makes a good worker. Wait, what do you companies were machine reading? What's that oh, mean? Yeah. So they would, um, I mean, this is something that was relatively new. They would have computers, for example, read cover letters or resumes and try to figure out. Well, do our best call or do our best workers come from four year colleges or from two year colleges or from which colleges? What backgrounds seem to uh, make the best worker? Um, they tried to uh, learn about what makes the best incentive plan designs. They tried to figure out who they should hire, who they should promote, uh, how they should transfer and move people within the organizations. And so someone's working all, uh, really hard to their, their, Googling tricks for building a resume and picking the exact font that's the most and, appealing to the eyes and the oh, size and all that. And then to the they, robots. And then the robot doesn't <laughs> care at all. Then they put a smiley face and some glitter on A little bit, you know. Right. So I think uh, certainly now there's other levels. So, for example, personality tests. Uh, when you apply for an organization, you can learn how to take those well. And uh, and indeed, yeah, there's this kind of like the meta game going on. Uh, we are the humans against the robots, so uh, so to speak. So a personality test. So you mean like someone can can potentially game a personality test, much in the same way like uh, I remember applying for jobs, and they'd be like do you think it's okay to steal pencils from work or whatever? And then, <laughs> right, and not then very I conscientious, <laughs> that's right. And then I, no, of course, I would never steal a pencil from work. And uh, He's lying. <laughs> <laughs> so so is that kind of what you're talking about? People are figuring out how to... Sure, yeah. Game. And, um, and you know, people are also studying, like, what can these uh, tests do? And these tests, notwithstanding some... Uh, their ability to be gamed uh, exists because they also largely have worked. And uh, for example, a lot of my uh, colleagues uh, study, for example, screening uh, tools that uh, organizations use to hire people. And so again, this is kind of taking something that seems rather mundane, which is applying for a job, but then saying, oh, let's go dig out some data, uh, produce some theories that can help us extend what we find to other settings. And then they do publish research and then they teach in their classrooms and uh, occasionally get invited to do a podcast. Oh, wonderful. So when you're talking about, uh, when you're talking about screening, like what kind of, te I had someone on uh, a while back who applied kind of the big five personality traits, consciousness, agreeability, neuroticism, mm -hmm. extroversion, and openness. openness. And, uh, boom, we nailed it. Nailed it. Um, and, uh, I, I believe it was called applymagicsauce.com where you could go in and you could put in your Facebook, you could put in really anyone's Facebook profile, I, I imagine, and, uh, and give, um, uh, maybe it need to be yours, but you would, you would give this thing access to your Facebook page and then it would 
depending on the various bands that you liked or the different pages or, you know, organizations that you liked the page of, they, they would put together this personality profile. Is that the sort of, Sure. Uh, I don't do that personally, but, uh, certainly as some of my other colleagues in the people on the list community are doing just that. One of the things that companies have their hands on, they'll have LinkedIn profiles, they'll have company emails, uh, researchers are studying how, for example, the way you structure your sentences and communicate with people on your corporate emails and who you communicate with and, uh, affects things like whether you turn over or your job performance. And so there's all this passive information being created about us that our companies uh, can use to figure out, for example, whether you deserve a promotion. Uh, mm. And that's and kind of this ubiquitous passively collected data that's going to be everywhere. And, um, and I think that's ultimately where, where we're headed. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it it used to be like, if you say had a neck tattoo or something like that, you'd (laughs) maybe have to worry about having a bad impression on a, uh, during an interview, but now it's anything that you've ever, if 10 years ago you recorded yourself huffing a nitrous balloon at, at a, concert or some silly thing like you know whatever ridiculous thing you don't inhale (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) or you have some like some political position that you held eight years ago and you were angry about uh you know made some threat about your neighbor who knows what so basically just anything your whole history is out there uh now and and employ hey how much I mean, I suppose every business is very different, but how much is, is your average, uh, employee really interested in this stuff and, and, uh, and looking into the personal lives of a potential worker, at least in, in the, in the companies you're working with? Right. So, um, I think, you know, maybe by virtue of the cultures of the companies that I am working with, they're, uh, they're really interested in, um, in the data and, um, so I know that like a lot of tech companies in particular, there could be more of an acceptance that really everything that we do, uh, data is collected on it. And ultimately someone's, uh, who wants to know how they can do better is going to run some sort of an experiment. Uh, and so I think, um, we have to be aware that a lot of the companies that perhaps are going to be developing these kinds of technologies are probably more, might be more open and have different norms and assumptions about what the broader world uh, would be comfortable with. Um, so for example, um, uh, uh, a lot of uh, larger tech companies are tracking where employees go uh, uh, physically. So for example, whether they uh, not just come into work, but whether how they often use the conference rooms or the break rooms or whatever else, um, uh, perhaps uh, seeing who they meet uh, by locating like where they are by like, tags. <laughs> and it seems like very intrusive, right? So I mean, you have a very it's a very natural it's a very natural response, and yet um, and yet. You know, sometimes when I'm looking at some of the things that are, are they timing? Are they timing? Uh, are, are they <laughs> timing been... our poops now? <laughs> like you go in and you use the handicap stall in the in the bathroom, and now that's you're definitely never getting that promotion now. <laughs> Maybe three years ago you took a nap in the handicap stall. It's, it seems crazy, but uh, it sometimes seems like that's the direction we might be heading. Hmm. 
Well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just found that uh, like a jarring and kind of scary thought. And this, I don't have a real job, or I don't, and I don't actually have to worry about this stuff necessarily. Maybe and you it, tag and monitor yourself. Well, I'm, I mean, it's my my thing is like I'll I'll reach a certain level of success, and and then someone with too much time on their hands will go through my Facebook and Twitter feed and right. and find a, a disagreeable. Uh, post from eight years ago where I swore about some celebrity or something like that. And then they're going to be like, this guy's a monster. And that's the thing that I'm going to have to just be like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> I think we're all hoping that by that time, everyone's secrets will be exposed and will just be, yeah, okay, just let's do 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 over here. <laughs> <laughs> it is it's a very, very interesting world that we're living in where we are going to have to kind of look at privacy in a very different way than than the way that we used to that's right so a workplace is going uh, they're tracking the movements of an employee is it just for stuff like that to like see if someone's taking too long uh, too long of breaks or is this like a some sort of a ergonomic thing where they're like trying to minimize the distance that someone's walking in a given day around the office or so like what's the purpose of of that data well one is um to create social networks uh, to understand what the social networks and the informal what we call the informal organization looks like you have like a formal organizational hierarchy but you also have uh, like for example friendship networks and i think when we have problems with an organization uh, at some point, you realize that uh, you know it's like the administrative assistant who knows knows how to get everything done and knows everybody, and then but this one you know maybe doesn't. You know, and a lot of that has to do not so much with their formal powers, but also uh, kind of the informal place in the network. And so, um, so some of those people are really important to the functioning of the organization. I think, uh, for example, uh, an example of uh, tracking, keeping, tra- making a network out of emails or keeping a network out of. Uh, who is talking to who, then you get a better picture of where really where the kind of the keynotes for like collaboration across different groups might be occurring. Hmm. So the popularity contest is just, a, it's never ending. Someone's like, well, I'm not a, I'm kind of an introvert, so I'm just going to learn how to do computer programming really well. But now they're monitoring this person and they're like, see this, well, this person's pretty good at their programming, but they're never telling fun stories around the water cooler. So the rest of, they're not like a team player. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly the sort of (laughs) determination that they're, (laughs) that they're figuring out. Is that I I was taking like a wild stab at an example of, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are people who are running, you know, statistical models on uh, who talks to who and collaboration and whether this will make you, you know, the, whether this makes you, for example, like a good person to lead a new project. That's hmm. certainly not out of the bounds. Hmm. Greetings, listeners. I'm excited to announce a new sponsor. Mac Weldon Menswear is sponsoring the Here We Are podcast. These angels came into my life at just the right time. It's summertime, and I'm wearing shorts all of the time. Every pair of shorts that I've ever had, I have trouble with my phone, my wallet, always falling out of my pocket. I get into the car, it's always falling out. Not a big deal usually, you know, whatever. I panic a little bit and then I find it uh, in between the the seat and the, and the door or whatever. But I had my phone fall out. This is in Lake Shallon, Washington. I had my phone fall out. 
of my pocket, and I didn't know it at the time. It fell into a driveway. The Airbnb that we were staying at, the Airbnb people found it rather than running it over, fortunately, and pulled it aside. And I was like, enough is enough. And I got back and I looked in my email and I got this sponsorship offer from Mac Weldon. So I went through and it's super easy to go through. It's all men's basic stuff at Mac Weldon. It's like uh, underwear, socks, all all just done right. Form-fitting, great fabric, uh, you know, t-shirts, hoodies, sweatpants, the kind of stuff that everyone wears. You know, it doesn't matter what your style is. We, we all need these kinds of garments. And I go on and they have shorts with zippers, zipper pockets, zipper pocket. How have I not seen shorts with zipper pockets before in my life? How did I not think of this early? I order them. They show up at my door a couple days later. And I also got a hoodie, by the way, a, a delightful orange hoodie. So comfortable. I made my girlfriend put it on too, to, so she could feel how comfortable the fabric is terrific but i'm i need to keep on telling you about how great these shorts are because they are the single best pair of shorts i have ever owned in my life ever maybe i'm just a bad short buyer i've been doing something wrong who knows but these shorts are incredible it's life-changing i'm gonna order more i was out playing disc golf in them yesterday went for a run in them today going rock climbing i've worn them a few days in a row that's all antimicrobial fabric to eliminate odor and all that kind of stuff and the pockets in these things are like a mesh uh it's a mesh not like a mesh it's a mesh pocket so you could you could put all sorts of cargo in there and have you could fit so much stuff in rather than like a denim pocket or whatever it's just fantastic i don't know how no one else has figured out pockets like this pockets are the most important thing in men's wear i i gotta like lug around backpacks and uh, you know winter comes around fortunately i get more pockets i can never fit all the things that i want to on my person i haven't gone the merce route yet you know maybe i'll try it one day but until that time i got mac weldon shorts and i can't wait to get the underwear from them they have these stay put legs like a, a stretchy band on the bottom so that they don't ride up the boxers boxers don't ride up on you uh, i don't know how well i don't have them yet but i'm excited to try them i go rock climbing the harness makes the boxers ride up and you gotta get in there and pull them down and and it's not comfortable so i'm hoping that's going to solve another problem in my life but i can't believe this zipper pocket i'm i'm so excited these shorts look good i'm exercising in them yeah i i can uh go out and about and be grilling out and whatever else with friends they look sharp but then they're also great for working out Go to MacWeldon.com and find the thing uh, for you. They have all sorts of underwear, undershirts, socks, tops, bottoms, accessories, swimwear. And right now, if you go to MacWeldon.com and enter the promo code Here We Are, you get 20% off. And you'll be supporting the podcast by doing that. And if you're uh, if you're a lady wondering what to get for your fellow these are things that every guy needs it doesn't matter what your sense of style is whatever this is uh this is comfortable menswear that we all have to uh 
uh, wear and go through, and you can never have enough underwear and socks and undershirts and that sort of thing. So check out MacWeldon.com, enter promo code. Here we are for 20% off. So you do something kind of pretty related to this is uh, some work with um, what's called the Peter Principle, right? Can you explain to the listener what the Peter Principle is and in your work within that? Because this is it's like a smooth transition, right? Yeah, That's sure. kind of like... Um, I also, you know, even on the topic of monitoring, if I can come back to that. Oh, yeah, we can. I, I love the topic, so we can keep on. I think, um, I mean, so one of the things that I found really interesting is, um, you know, you mentioned, I, th- I think, you know, you have this like reaction that that this seems very intrusive, like on, on people. People have certain mm-hmm. expectations of privacy, even at their own workplace, perhaps. And I think that's uh, really real, you know. And, and one of the things that I uh, began to, I think, appreciate that is I'm, I'm doing some work with um, Runa Ringanathan at Stanford University, and we were studying this factory that had twelve production lines, and at these twelve different production lines, they just started, uh, they just started implementing what's called a, a process control system that tracks how quickly they're working uh, down to the second uh, for every for every little movement and every uh, little um, uh, process that they do that tracks how long it takes them and then there's kind of has this dashboard that shows right in front of your face how uh, how quickly you're working and what what they think is the maximum productivity you could be if you're working your hardest kind of a hundred percent efficiency and I think what you uh when, when, and what we have found is that when you monitor people doing really complex tasks in that kind of environment, so uh, some of these people were doing doing very delicate and, and, and complicated uh, stitch work, uh, their productivity actually declined. You know, they they, they thought that uh, that their autonomy was being impinged upon, and that this uh, monitoring system in this case was really impinging on their craft, on the craftsmanship and the pride that they had with their work. And so, um, and so we had productivity data both before and after this was implemented, both at the lines that were treated with this uh, system and those at the control lines. The control lines over this period were uh, stayed very um, steady, eddy uh, for the for the people who are doing these really complex and delicate tasks. And just at the treated lines for the people who are doing complex tasks, their productivity began to decline after. Uh, this technology is implemented. This mm. technology that was supposed to give them feedback and ultimately uh, motivate them and tell them how they're doing. I think, um, and I, I mean, I, it's nerve wracking, isn't it? I, I, yeah. remember I worked in a, I worked for Ashley Furniture actually in Arcadia, Wisconsin. Okay. For, for years. We worked on peace, right? And, you know, the more parts you'd crank out, the mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. money you'd make essentially. But I remember, you know, anytime the supervisor or superintendent would stop and just watch you work for <laughs> 10 minutes straight, it was just like this nerve wracking experience. Yeah, like, so why are they just standing <laughs> there watching me? So what do you do? You, uh, you speed up when they, when the supervisor came around? Yeah. I, I, I think I tried to, but it, but it's like, um, well, here's the, the catch 22. If you, you know, you the supervisor come and you speed up, they, you know, classically what would happen in factories is if the supervisor comes with their stopwatch and they sees you working really hard, really fast, they say, Oh, well, apparently you can do this job really fast. And an hour, you should be able to produce this many. Right. Uh, now the piece rate just went up. Huh? Yeah. Or the rate you got just went down. Right. <laughs> they keep the, target amount that you should be earning the same and they just say okay well now you have to produce 200 
pieces of furniture or whatever have you. That sounds like a lot of pieces of furniture for an hour, but uh, <laughs> as opposed to 100, they just uh, what they call ratchet up the uh, ratchet up the the target. So when the supervisor's around, you should be doing a bunch of if you can get away with it you should be doing like a bunch of unnecessary oh yeah things that makes it look like you're working exactly really hard and frantically but it's in fact taking you much longer than it usually does to complete a task yeah and the supervisor comes actually they have a, a, a name for this they call it gold bricking where you you pretend like everything is like very precious and you have to be very careful with like everything you're doing, but you're, so you're treating everything as if it's made out of gold. Uh, Mm -hmm. And these are kind of when the classic problems of actually trying to uh, monitor people and set piece rates that make sense is that, you know, if you work too fast, they're going to change the rate on you. So you want to get just enough so that you can earn your piece rate, but not get a, not get burned by the, by the person with the stopwatch. Hmm. I feel like I'm I'm kind of a, I'm my own boss, and I feel like I do a lot of like gold bricking like with myself. I feel like, like <laughs> I was going to well, ask you how it's <laughs> not quite perfect yet. Oh, it's just it needs to be just perfect. It's not quite ready for stage. I was going to ask you if how you would feel if you're like if you're if you're being recorded when when you work, but I guess that doesn't you know work work for you, huh? <laughs> um, I think it would kind of be a nightmare situation. Much yeah. of I mean my. Much of my process is just I'm sitting and kind of writing out my sure, stream yeah. of consciousness um, without any intent of being funny or good or interesting or anything. I'm just mm-hmm. kind of writing what comes out. And then after that time, then I kind of go through what happened and see if there's anything of interest that that uh, little kernel or a little little gem in there that I can pull out and and maybe tweak and, and figure out like a joke structure for it or where where it will apply to some interesting thing that I want to say on a future podcast or whatever it might be but with someone looking over my shoulder that whole right. beginning and kind of brainstorming yeah, uh spitballing yeah. would be would be gone and without that I don't know uh what I would do right and, and and it's like a real nightmare with like, you know, if I, uh, the fear is always that, you know, I'll leave my notebook out. My girlfriend will look through my notebook when I'm not around or I'll leave it on an airplane and someone will see this crazy stuff that I've written. You know, that's, <laughs> that's something that you have to get over, over, yeah. over time. But that's, that's another like mental barrier that keeps you from being as creative um, yeah. as possible. And I think you, you know, you bring up a really good point when you mention like creative work. I think, uh, you know, I think we really value autonomy in our jobs. And, and I said, you have someone watching you. I think in that case seems especially pernicious. I think, um, one of the things we found actually when we were studying the factory is that when this technology was introduced to line workers who are doing really simple, boring, routine tasks, they actually sped up after the technology is introduced. The people who are doing the really delicate, complex work, they slow down after after their work is being closely monitored. Mm-hmm. Um, so there you go. I think your you know your intuition. Yeah, I mean, if I'm if I'm like, okay, let's let's write a joke right now, and I and I'm just like, I'm gonna write a joke the hardest, yeah, and like, like maybe if I crank. clench my muscles more, like I think think as hard as I can, a joke will pop out, and that's just simply not how creativity works. Yeah, sure. I mean that that's that's such an interesting thing with um, most of how to measure 
I, I mean, I guess this is what you're eventually trying to accomplish with some of this big data thing is, 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 is some of the big data stuff is you're trying to get this sea of variables and interactions all kind of making sense of all of it working together because um it's 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 one thing to evaluate uh a performance and and be like well this person's value is um equal to the number of uh, widgets that they make and it's always widgets. Um, widgets. that's all, that's all we make is widgets. I haven't seen one, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, believe me, everyone's <laughs> out there making widgets. Um, the number, the number of, of widgets you put out in it, I, like if you, if you have, if you make a hundred widgets in an hour, you're worth X. If you make 200 widgets in an hour, you're worth two X. And, uh, and this is, this is a clear, definition of an employee's value but uh but you look at some of the um new data that i assume you're collecting in this tracking you're you're now you're talking about well how how well liked is a person how does a person work with other people how what kind of uh new ideas and problem solving is this uh is this person doing and if they're if they're showing up and they're making 300 widgets in an hour, but they're screaming at everyone and making everyone else's lives miserable, is the, is that still the same 3x value yeah, or whatever? Sure. Oftentimes not. I mean, the irony is whenever we see organizations pay like a piece rate, they just start a piece rate and pay for quantity. Everything else goes out the window. You know, mm-hmm. quality will suffer. Uh, ideas and cooperation will go out the window. Uh it's kind of remarkable how uh, all the examples of really creative uh, kind of shortcuts that uh, you can see people uh, take. Like one example is um, there's a private bus company in uh, Chile and uh, they started paying people per passenger. And so this private bus, uh, this, uh, this, the private buses, uh, unlike the public buses uh, and unlike the private buses before they implemented this I idea of paying people per passenger um these buses started uh just um not dropping people off when they wanted to get off they would uh they wouldn't wait for people who are handicapped they would uh they got in more accidents you know they would uh skirt on every possible uh uh thing that they could so that they can really do the one thing they're paid to do which is literally to pick up passengers and nothing else that is so interesting i mean it it is I, I often think a lot about how we're going to have to reassess what what our notion of productivity is because I, I definitely think the uh, there there's a bit of um, there's always a bit of growing pains and and we live in a world where production and culture and everything else changes very rapidly and we we do have this we had this boom of the industrial revolution where right. where people were making widgets or uh whatever yeah, charlie uh, chaplin other, other things and and uh and peace rate might have made a, a quite a bit more sense and 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 especially back then um not just in terms of production but in terms of of pride that was that was a a, a widget maker was a <laughs> was a very honorable occupation, and that's also another thing that's 
that's uh changing these days so do you do you think that um do you think that it's some of this is just growing pains and we're just uh we're just still learning or and we're figuring things out or do you think that there's still just uh some very big fundamental misunderstandings and um from assumptions that we've made or do do you think that there's problems within um uh, uh within organizations where uh just built in uh, in in the hierarchies where where the kind of the the laborers they just do the task that they're told and they they, they don't you know we don't ask them for input on how to do the job better or anything else and then you have the middle management has their very specific task and then you have the guys on the top and no one ever questions them and they and they don't ever have to go down to see what's happening on the floor um what do you see uh kind of changing um in our in our modern landscape compared to because I, I and i guess i've been talking a lot about manufacturing but manufacturing is getting hey, the thing of the past as well you well, know i think seems. um like to that point uh you know manufacturing and the piece rate is kind of one of the things that people come to mind when people talk think about monitoring and tracking performance um but really uh i think increasingly a lot of jobs and a lot of professions that once enjoyed considerable autonomy are now being uh, tracked on a, on a very large number of net uh, uh, metrics. My parents are physicians, uh, so patient satisfaction and and outcomes, of course, uh, are being tracked by their hospital. Um, I'm a professor at the university. Uh, same thing for their metrics around research and uh, teaching and, uh, and 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 other objectives uh, for us as well. Um, and these. You know, this isn't really, I think, the job where you, I don't know, my, my idea of this professor maybe 50 years ago was, you know, tweed jacket, like pipe, you know, English terrier, fireplace. Like, I don't, I don't really know if that's the, you know, maybe this, like, you know, uh, focus on the metrics and the goals. I'd sure like to think there's a few tweed jackets <laughs> out there. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm sure. I'm going to, I'm going to go find those and that'll be, <laughs> that'll be a nice, that'll be a nice place to, I don't know, spend a sabbatical, I guess. <laughs> but, but the goals now you have to just crank out papers left and right and that's what you're being measured on yeah i mean to do good research and i think to do all by your students and uh uh and certainly um you know no incentive scheme is perfect but i think uh by at least targeting these uh certain certain areas you're you're telling people that these are uh really what you're supposed to be focusing on uh, and and again, you know, this is you know, this is the age of data where we can measure uh, so many things if we wanted to. The question then is, uh, what should we measure, and how should we uh, manage people around what we uh, see if we do choose to measure those things? So, um, as a as an assistant professor, and as someone you know, you you have to teach or have to get to whatever are you a fan of teaching is it <laughs> uh not to put you on the spot here but i know people go back and forth some people like really love the teaching aspect some people it's just like in the way of the research they'd like to be doing how how does a school go about evaluating um evaluating like a, a teaching performance is is it just all based on the 
rate my professor and like and if you have the hot pepper or whatever oh, you get. I have a hot pepper right now and uh, so if you're listening to this All right. pretend you're my students and give me some more chilies because I might be on the cusp there <laughs> um, yeah it's uh, yeah they do they do surveys of students at the end of each class and they and they ask how it's really much like any customer satisfaction survey um, and uh and so, and there's ways to game it. You can give, for example, really high grades. Uh, and so some people think that uh, student evaluations are contributing to grade inflation, for example. Mm. And so this goes back to this idea where, you know, if you reward people for one thing, you might be doing, they might end up doing something that you don't want them to do. For example, inflating grades or uh, or not giving very much work or something like that. Um, and uh, to your earlier question, I think... Uh, yeah, I think uh you know there's this stigma of the professor who who doesn't like the classroom and doesn't like teaching and just wants to get back to the research. On the other hand, um you know there is uh there are really you know there's really a lot of professors out there uh and I think myself included who you know when they're in the classroom that's you know that they might say that's the best part of their day. Mm. Uh, um so Going back to the monitoring stuff, what, mm-hmm. what, uh, so n- now we, uh, we live in this world where, uh, people are now having, they're building their own startups in their free time. And, and you have, I think like Wikipedia was one where whoever Jimmy first started Wales, creating yeah. it had a, had a job and in their free time and they would go and tinker with this Wikipedia idea that they had. And next thing you know, that, blows up and completely changes the world that we that we live in and and uh and i've heard about some companies having like uh you know one day out of a week you get the team together and they can just work on whatever they want if they have their little pet project or whatever they can work on that they're just giving given free um autonomy how, how does all of that uh, fit into? And then uh, you you hear about the the Google offices with the all the fancy everything, but then there's uh, with, you know the gym and you have a amusement park in the office or whatever mm-hmm. whatever Probably. else you have. <laughs> I, yeah. I imagine it, uh, in my mind it's just like nothing but roller coasters <laughs> to take you from if you go Probably from one person's logo, yeah. desk to the conference room, you take a roller coaster to get there, um, but uh shaped like the google logo um but and then and then some people are like well that's just it's keeping people there longer you're just uh now they're not going home and they're sleeping in their offices because you gave them a uh uh um uh, uh is it millennium falcon is that, is that the, am i saying that wrong i'm trying to make a star wars reference you know, give right. them that bed at work that they now sleep oh, in and now sleep in the millennium falcon. <laughs> yeah and so now no one's ever <laughs> no one that google it seems like this perfect place to live but no one's leaving it i, I don't know how how do you I mean, the question that i'm trying to ask because i'm attempting to make silly jokes here and there is how are uh, modern businesses finding now that they have the opportunity to have cameras around in every room and collect all of this data. How, how are they finding the balance, um, between how much privacy you actually give an employee and how, I guess the data tells you what the most <laughs> effective thing is, right? 
Yeah, I think um, and so many companies are doing different things and have different approaches to this. I think um, overall, I've worked with um, some Silicon Valley firms, and there's at least uh, early stage certainly like an open an openness that can be very infectious. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, I think it's not for everybody. I think that might be some of the hubris that we might be seeing. And the news about large tech companies just surprised that uh, the amount of, I think, um, fear that uh, that uh, companies have over um, over what they see as their private lives. And so, what might be, you know, even if you can't, you know, Googleplex could be a utopia with you know no privacy, but at the same time, uh, this may not be exactly the world that, uh, of course, everyone wants to live in. Mm. Um, all right. Well, uh, so I, I don't want to forget about, uh, we need to get into the Peter principle yeah. at some point because I, it's now an open loop and every, all the listeners are like, what is this Peter principle? <laughs> We're dying to know. So can you tell listeners yeah. a little bit about it? Um, I mean, this is a really good example too of, you know, you can track all this information and, and you can test assumptions that we might have had about, about our workplaces. And kind of the Twitter version would be, you know, we explain why your boss is bad. That's kind of the the, the fake kind of Twitter version of what the Peter uh, principle is. Um, it's this idea that if you're good at your job, you get promoted. If you're bad at your job, then you don't get promoted. And so inevitably, people get who are good at their job get promoted until they're bad at their job, and then they get stuck there. That's really the essence of the Peter principle. It, isn't it, I think the quote that I saw was, you get promoted to the level of your incompetence that's right yeah right it's kind of like a soul searching you know finding you know finding what you're incompetent at uh, and then mm-hmm. you're stuck there and so um and so you know and, and since i do so much of my work with salespeople and other people who are paid high powered incentives uh i've always heard this mantra that the best salesperson doesn't make the best sales manager and and so of course, it begs the question, well, so are organizations promoting the best salespeople? And so, and what I did is, um, so I was working with, um, with a tech company, a company that, uh, administers, uh, what's called sales performance management software over the cloud. And so they have the software that's hosted on servers and companies log in and they, uh, put in all of their information about how their incentive plans work and things like that. And their salespeople can just log in to like a website essentially and see how they're performing against their sales goals. And so this company has data on hundreds of other companies' uh, salespeople, uh, very detailed information, hundreds of millions of transactions, uh, tens of thousands of salespeople. And so, um, and with those data, I was interested in okay, well, are organizations actually promoting the best salespeople? And they are. There's a very, very strong correlation between sales performance and whether we see you get promoted in the data. Uh, so the top salespeople are being promoted. Um, what I didn't expect to find is that there's actually a negative correlation between your uh, between your former sales and the the performance of your future team after you get promoted. That is, the best salespeople were getting promoted, and they are becoming the worst managers that you see in the data. And so, uh, and so, uh, so we're saying, well, I mean, this is actually like largely consistent with the Peter principle. The best people, people who are good at their jobs are getting promoted and they're becoming bad sales managers. Mm. 
So, uh, so who's a good sales manager? So you, so you get the worst people then. Yeah, that's worst. right. <laughs> um, well, yeah. So I think the people who are, you know, when an organization passes over the top salespeople and promotes somebody who might have middling sales, they might have something else that they can, that they know about that person that says, well, this person is, uh, such a good leader. This person is so good at navigating the politics of organizations, uh, doing more complex deals, or or it has other skills that are more well suited to uh, being a manager. That they kind of pass over the best salespeople and promote someone from um, from deeper down, and they appear to make better managers. Mm. Is that discouraging to the top salespeople? Then it could be. You know, one of the other things we find is that for organizations that tend to pay a lot of base so base pay so they don't pay much meaning that uh if you're a high performing salesperson you don't earn that much more than a low performing salesperson um in those cases really the only way to get a raise is to become a manager uh you you get promoted to a position that has a higher base pay so instead of getting like eighty thousand dollars in base pay and twenty thousand incentives, you get promoted to a job that has, for example, one hundred fifty thousand dollars of base, and then some incentives. So, and and in those cases where organizations really aren't providing very strong incentives, you know, if you're the top salesperson and you want to advance in your career and you want to make more money, you have to accept that promotion. And and in those cases where organizations are paying people intensively with base pay, we're finding that they are making the biggest mistakes regarding who they promote. They tend to promote the the best salespeople and they tend to make the very worst managers that we see in the data. Um, organizations that get around this, um, they're organizations that give the best salespeople so much incentive pay that the best salespeople don't need to accept a promotion in order to earn uh, potentially more than the manager and uh, those are the organizations that seem most immune to the Peter Principle. Hmm. Uh, so, so what's the, uh, so so what it what is the it, what is the reaction from organizations when you go back to them and explain this to them? I mean, oftentimes a lot of chuckles. I mean, the funny thing is that it's, I think it's a compliment, but. Um, sometimes when I'm talking to, uh, to salespeople and I've, and I've, and I've talked to, for example, like the sales management association and, um, and various compensation and sales compensation conferences presented in front of a lot of salespeople. And, you know, oftentimes there's really no, uh, no one really disputes that, you know, the best salespeople don't necessarily make the best managers, yet we do it anyway. Uh, and, and I'm not sure, you know, why that is. You know, some people have different theories. One theory is that organizations just have to offer the promotion to the best salesperson because they're the ones who are doing their job best. You know, it doesn't seem fair to pass it them over uh, mm-hmm. when you're offering a promotion. Um, I think, uh, uh, um, I think there's also, um, and so I think like this idea of like fairness and, and norms, I think are are, are very important for. Uh, and one of the reasons why the Peter Principle appears to exist. Hmm. Are there any other um, Are there any other kind of odd assumptions out there that um, that you're looking into? Yeah, I think you know one thing is that uh, like you might not know who the best salesperson is, uh, and or the best candidate to be a manager is. Um, we actually find that in the data, there's a lot of indicators for uh, who's going to make a good manager. So, for example. In those data, we find that people who are doing a lot of really complex deals, people who are credited on on sales um, with people who are um, product specialists and you know, pipeline specialists or 
um, specialists in various different parts, and they're all credited on these massive complex deals. People who are more engaged in, in that kind of team selling activity, when they get promoted, they tend to make better managers. I mean, mm. They bring up the performance of their whole team. And so... Um, and so this idea that you promote the best salespeople to become managers because you don't know who the best manager could be, uh, you know, it seems to suggest that, you know, organizations uh, could potentially, uh, you know, look into their data and, and figure out who a better person is going to be. Because even though those people who are great collaborators make great managers, we find that uh, great collaborators are actually less likely to be promoted. Said organizations are passing them over for those top performers, those lone wolves who uh, who appear to make the worst managers in our data. Yeah, huh? I mean, it it, it seems like, uh, it, it, I, and I know this isn't uh, this isn't really your field, but it, 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 when I look around at how things go, it seems like there's a lot of just evolutionary leftovers of, <laughs> of we, we seem to look at like this top alpha confident guy and be like, okay, that guy that you put him in charge. And especially the case in sales. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and, uh, often mistakenly, I imagine is I, I imagine it, it to be good at individual sales sometimes to have that kind of personality, especially to kind of, you probably, don't mind maybe stepping on the toes of a couple other sales associates that you're working at to to get the it could be i mean I think more often it's you know some of the you know some some star salespeople and these are business business like enterprise salespeople they uh they're they're professionals they are really highly comp- compensated they you know they don't uh they don't really w- want to work uh with with other people they mm-hmm. uh they value their autonomy they they know uh, they know what they need to do and, uh, and, you know, they would just as soon have kind of minimal interaction with the organization. It's kind of like big brother to, to a lot of them. Hmm. I see. Makes sense. So, um, so can we talk about some of, uh, uh, some of your other work that you've Godly, yeah. done in the past? So what's, uh, I'm just looking through some of your other, um, publications this is something uh can you talk about the rethinking the two-body problem because i have i have a lot of uh i have a lot of uh people on the i've had a lot of these conversations with academics that i've had academics for sure on the uh on the show so I, i think the listener might be interested right so um so in rethinking the two body problem, uh, we were really, uh, can you explain what the two body problem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the two body problem is when you're looking for a job, uh, and potentially that one that involves a geographic relocation, uh, then, uh, then oftentimes there'll be someone who is kind of leading the way. And then you'd have what you might call a tide mover. So for example, a spouse who, uh, who follows along the person who, is perhaps relocating uh, to take up another job opportunity in a different city. And there's this hypothesis that um, that this is one of the drivers of uh, gender wage inequality because couples, uh, for normative reasons, might move for men's careers. And uh, for that reason, women will tend to be uh, will tend to be tide movers, uh, the spouse who would who'd follow along for their husband's career. And uh, essentially forego better opportunities that they might have at home, uh, not literally at home, could be their workplace that they just have in their in their current town. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and so, 
And in that paper, you know, it was really interested in this idea that, you know, if, if men are expecting that they're going to be able to relocate for work, and, and women indeed are going, are expecting that they're going to be a t- more likely to be a tide mover, then shouldn't that change the kind of jobs that you'd go into? And one of the things I found in the paper is that the, the jobs that tend to move the most uh, tend to be dominated by men, but women who are in those jobs actually move a lot too. Uh, so for example, um, you find that some of the jobs that are the most concentrated in the country, uh, those are jobs like naval architects and nuclear engineers, um, jobs where, uh, they're really only found in a few places. Those tend to be very male dominated. The, the jobs that tend to be the most female dominated include jobs like nursing and teachers and administrative assistants, jobs where, uh, where they're ubiquitous. They're more mm-hmm. human service types jobs. And, um, yeah. There's humans everywhere. There are humans anywhere there are humans, basically. Yeah. So, um, and so, right. And so they, uh, and so the idea is, yeah. So, you know, so teachers might be more likely to be a tide mover, but at the other end, you know, a, a nuclear engineers or naval architect probably is not going to move for, for the job of, um, perhaps like an administrative assistant or someone who, who really could do their job anywhere. And so, um, and so in that paper, I actually find that like men tend to be in these jobs that are more geographically constrained and involve frequent relocation for work. But, uh, but interestingly, women who have those jobs have much the same mobility patterns, just that men tend to dominate in them. And so, um, in that, in that paper, I argue that, you know, we could be living in the society where there's unfortunately this kind of self-fulfilling, um, expectation where men are going to enter jobs that, uh, where they, are allowed to relocate for work and that puts women in a very difficult position where they are much more likely highly educated women are much more likely to marry a man who will have chosen their occupation uh with that expectation that they'd be able to relocate for work mm-hmm. um, and that could place a highly educated women who are in high power jobs in a very difficult spot um, and unfortunately one of the things i find is that women who enter those jobs that are more male dominated that involve relocation for work uh, they tend to uh, marry later they tend to have higher divorce divorce rates they tend to um, have and if they do marry they tend to have uh, big earnings penalties later on and they're more likely to marry men who are also in jobs that actually have frequent relocation as well um, and that's only true for women uh, men have none of these same penalties mm. and um, again I think it's largely because uh, at least in part because uh, men are, on average, are more likely to be married to one of those nurses or, or teachers or administrative assistants or someone who uh, whose job is more flexible and, and able to uh, to follow along the kinds of jobs that are that tend to be held by men. Mm. Mm. I it doesn't matter where I live, so it's the opposite for me. I <laughs> yeah, I, I only I I only make lady based moving decisions. My my current girlfriend is outside of Portland, and so I... It's a good place uh, to be. Uh, and so I'm like, yeah, all right, I'll move there. Across uh, Portland? Yeah. Moved there. to L.A. for my last girlfriend. Moved from Boston to Austin for a girlfriend before that. I just... Yeah. I'll... Uh, <laughs> I uh, will move for ladies is the little good, cardboard good. <laughs> uh, sign that I hold outside of bars. Maybe more women I'm should single. become podcasters, you know? <laughs> um, um, so I have a, 
at least one, maybe maybe a couple more questions to wrap up. But uh, before we get to that, I do uh, have each uh, each week I have my guest name a uh, a charity of their choice, just a fun, nice little thing we like to do mm-hmm. on the show to promote kindness and generosity. Great. Um... I mean, I, I, I guess I have a cause that's near and dear to my heart, uh, and that's early childhood education. I, again, much of my training has been in labor economics, and I think if there's one thing that we know, it's that investments in early childhood education have great returns, but oftentimes families are asked to make these contributions at a part where they simply don't have the money to, uh, to put a lot of money, uh, resources into high quality daycare. And so, uh, so you can find the local charity that supports early childhood education. Um, one in Minneapolis is called a waytogrow.org and they help communities and families to, uh, uh, to uh, provide their children with enriching activities. And so this would be a good way to make an investment that return, generates, you know, good returns over a child's life. Wonderful. Um, all right. Well, I have, uh, just a couple more things. And, and if I, if there's, uh, if, if there's any open loops up there that you want to tie up, you're welcome to as well. But I was, I was thinking about, um, some of your work. And, and if I, if I missed this information in there, forgive me. I may be asking something that I'm already supposed to know. But what are the size of the companies that you're getting? Um, the data that you're, you're looking, I, are, are these working, mostly large companies? I'm working with a company that has employed uh, almost 1% of the U.S. labor force in the last five years, okay. uh, so over a million people. I'm working with a company that is itself small, but that's not, you know, the, the, the trick up their sleeve is they are the software provider that's collecting data on hundreds of other companies. Um, mm. So, right. So, yeah, we're, we're digging through uh, big people data. Okay, because the reason I ask is because, um, as as my listeners hear some of this uh, interesting work and and are thinking about their own jobs and how maybe they can apply some of this information to what they do, do you think that there's a there might be in, when we're talking about who to promote and what there might there might be some kind of differences between some of these massive companies and, and, and what's going to work best for them and like some ma and pa kind of, uh, business. Like my, my dad owns a business with, I think he has five employees right at the, <laughs> at the moment. So are, are these, well, one story the, is, um, when you have five employees, I hope you know your people well enough not <laughs> to have to rely on a statistical model. Sure, um, sure, right. That's my, that's my main piece of advice. <laughs> um, yeah, my parents are small business owners and I wouldn't assume that, uh, that, you know, what's true among, uh, 100,000 salespeople would necessarily apply to managing by, like, those five particular people. People right. have different motivations, but I'm, I'm sure there's still some some things to be learned from, especially in terms of um, the autonomy stuff, and in terms of the monitoring. I, I think that there's definitely lessons that any of us could glean from uh, from some of that work, in particular, in terms of how to motivate an individual uh, employee and how to, uh, you know, not not maybe not drive a 
employee out of their mind and overly stress them <laughs> into quitting because you're looking over their shoulder all the time. That's right. Yeah. I mean, sometimes one's intuition can, uh, can work against you. I think at least at the very least, you know, keep these things in mind and know that people like in that case of that, you know, they really value their autonomy and, uh, sometimes, uh, monitoring can backfire. So I'm gonna, I'm going to, uh, probably inadvertently, I might put you on the spot here. Um, you have any, uh, any books out there about this stuff? Any like, are there any like pop science books or anything? Like, uh, you know, like Dan Ariely or any of these people. Out there? Dan Ariely is good. Um, I mean, I think, uh, I think a fun, fun one is uh, Steve Levitt and Freakonomics is a good introduction to Great. some of the counterintuitive, uh, things that we're learning in the field of behavioral economics. Um, and so, yeah, I think um, there's always always so many interesting things. Dan, Dan Ariely, um certainly as well. Um, behavioral economics is a very interesting field, um, and there's been some great, very interesting popular books uh, using that recently as well. All right, well, thank you, Alan Benson, for joining me. And thank you, Shane. Uh, and thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. Next week on the program, it's a mystery. I haven't decided what I'm going to do yet. I have a couple episodes in the can. I have a couple I'm uh, loading up. And I'm thinking I'm going to do a solo episode, if you're listening to this. I was talking with uh, my editor, Jimmy Fro, with the Jimmy Fro Indie Music Podcast. And he he mentioned that uh, a lot of people new to the show might not know. uh, You know, people just start listening to here we are and they don't really know the story of here we are how it came to be and and i've done shows where i've had listeners to here we are come up to me afterwards and be like hey i listened to here we are and i didn't know that you were uh performing tonight i didn't really even know you were a stand-up comic or i heard you mention it a few times or i don't know how that's possible but it's happened uh it's happened several times to me where someone's a here we are listener and then they just happen to find themselves at one of my stand-up shows stand-up is my uh my main uh thing it's what i it's what i do i'm a stand-up comedian uh first and foremost but that's that's awesome and exciting but i was thinking that because I get asked a lot of the same questions a lot. I don't. I don't mean to say that in a like. Uh, I don't know. Like they're boring or or anything like that. I just. Uh, I mean that a lot of people must have the same things on their mind because every time I do like a newspaper interview or or um, sometimes chat with fans after shows or or talk with just people about the podcast in general, I get asked a lot of the same questions about why I started doing it and how it came to be and that sort of thing. So I'm thinking I might just do an episode about that. So what do you think about that idea? If you like it, maybe uh, maybe you'll have some questions of your own and you can write in to the herewearepodcast.com website and, and maybe write anything that you would like me to uh, share that you'd like to know more about me, about the podcast, about my interests, my background, um, anything that you think would be relevant. 
Or is that an awful idea? Are you not interested at all? <laughs> I don't think that's going to be the case. I can't imagine you're going to email and be like, I don't want to hear the background of the Here We Are podcast. I just thought it would be a cool reference because then I can have first-time listeners that go to the site go to that episode and get a little bit of a context. And then any um, journalists or whatever in the future, I can just kind of email them a link to that episode and it will kind of answer a lot of your basic questions for you. Um, And a little frequently asked questions episode. So that was a thought. Um, But yeah, next week, mystery episode. I don't even want to say anymore because I might have some exciting... Uh, kind of topical-ish stuff happening with the... Uh, I can't even say any more than that because it's not... Nothing is ever finalized and things fall through. But thanks for the support on patreon.com slash Shane Moss. I'm digging some of the new equipment that I have and that pays for things like I'm, I'm getting a rental car this coming week just so I can record some more Here We Are podcast episodes. So that's just additional travel expenses and stuff that that is covered by patreon.com slash Shane Moss and check out my very dear friend Ramin Nazer on follow him on Twitter and Instagram and everything that he does. Maybe go and buy a comic book from him he does a lot of the web design he in the past edited the here we are podcast and he he does a lot of consulting i I guess i'd say on the show i'm always calling him uh, to brainstorm ideas for the direction of the show and the direction of my stand-up and he makes artwork for me and did stuff with the documentary so ramin nazer i haven't thrown him a plug in a little while he's a big part of the behind the scenes of the here we are podcast so check out his fantastic work those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorites